It's good to be with you guys. Uh, thank you for being here. If this is your first time here, my name is Garrison, and I'm one of the pastors here at Veritas Dayton. We're so glad to uh, be with you this morning. Uh, if you would open your Bibles with me, we're going to be looking at Matthew 5, 13 through 16. Matthew 5, 13 through 16. Uh, we are uh, exiting the Beatitudes portion of the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount and entering into the next section. We're still in the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, 10 weeks in, uh, we're still in the introduction, uh, but there's a, a lot of good stuff to get through uh, in the coming weeks and months in the Sermon on the Mount, so we want to take our time. We want to take our time and relish the words of our Savior as they come to us through the Apostle Matthew. Uh, so we're going to be looking at Matthew five thirteen through 16. Uh, if you would, uh, take a moment, and I guess, actually, I'm not even going to ask you to fill out a Connect card. You didn't get one of those, but I want to uh, uh, mention something specifically. If you are a guest here, you are new here, you've been here uh, if this is your first time or you've just been coming the last few weeks, we have something uh, following immediately after the gathering up here on the balcony. Uh, all three of the pastors um, are going to be up there and we do something called Veritas in 10. And that is where we take 10 minutes to uh, uh, just kind of give an a overview of uh, Veritas Community Church um, and uh, where we just get to explain to you a little bit about our church, and you get to ask questions, and we'll answer any questions you might have. So if you're new, or, or you've just been for the last few weeks, or if it's your first time, please come uh, meet with us uh, upstairs immediately after the gathering in the balcony up here. We'd love to, to get to know you a little bit. Um, all right, we're going to dig into Matthew 5, 13 through 16. Let's listen to the words of Jesus, and let's listen to these words, hear these words, as if Jesus himself was standing here speaking them to us himself, because these words come with the very same authority. These, these are the words of Jesus. And this is what he says. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, part of what's so difficult about preaching a text, a passage such as this, is the familiarity with which some of us read these words. Um, and I don't even necessarily mean that uh, we've read and meditated on and memorized these words and understood this particular passage from Jesus. Rather, I mean uh, how like phrases like salt of the earth and light of the world and 
and city on a hill are, are used so much in, in the common vernacular. Uh, we're familiar with these phrases, aren't we? Uh, and so often familiarity breeds not just contempt, but misunderstanding. And we've heard <coughs> in all used uh, a phrase like this, assault of the earth before. You know, so picture you might meet someone at a coffee shop or at work with whom you have a mutual friend. A mutual friend, his name is Tommy. And uh, this mutual friend of yours, Tommy, is a person of integrity. He's someone who works hard, who's reliable. And you might say, Tommy, he's just salt of the earth kind of guy. You know? And what are you saying? You're, you're saying that Tommy is like salt. He's reliable and consistent. You know, salt is, is stable. It's reliable. It's consistent. And that's an illustration for Tommy's character. So we say Tommy is, is salt of the earth kind of people. And then we come to a text like this in the Bible, and we think that's what Jesus is, is saying about Christians. The question is, is, is that what Jesus is saying? Is he saying that we Christians are like Tommy? That we're a people of integrity and reliability? Of course, we ought to be, but is that what Jesus is talking about here? Uh, likewise, the, the light of the world and the, the city on a hill. This is a phrase we hear a lot, and we hear it particularly in reference to United States of America, don't we? Now, presidents, JFK, Reagan, Bush, both HW and W, uh, Obama, Trump, they've all made some sort of reference during their presidencies, some more explicit, some less, to the idea that the United States is the light of the world or a city set on a hill, a city, a shining example for all the world to see and to mimic our way of freedom and liberty and so on and so forth. And it's not just presidents. You've probably heard relatives or friends or, or local politicians or, or whomever within the last few weeks on the heels of the 4th of July, you've probably heard people talking about the United States in this way. But again, is that what Jesus is talking about here? Of course, I can tell you with confidence this morning that the United States is not actually what Jesus is talking about here. It didn't even exist at this point. We are the ones that Jesus is talking about. You and me. And not because of our earthly citizenship, but because of our citizenship in the kingdom of God. Because of, Jesus is not, talk, he's not talking about America or any other earthly nation. He's talking about the nation that he came to purchase and establish with his blood. He's talking about the kingdom of priests, the holy nation, the, the people of his new creation. He's talking about the church. And what Jesus is doing here when he calls us salt and light is he's telling us about our place in the world. He's telling us that our place in the world is not to be a people that look like the world. We don't act like the rest of the world. We don't do the same things that the world does. We don't speak in the same way that the world speaks. We don't think in the same way that the world thinks. We are a distinct people, a, a holy people, a set-apart people. However, on the other hand, part of the brilliance of these illustrations is what they also communicate. On the other hand, Jesus is telling us that our set-apartness doesn't mean separatist. 
We are a people set apart from the world, yes, but we're still to live in and embody the kingdom of God right in the middle of this world. In fact, he says that we're to embody the kingdom of God in the world for the sake of the world. We're to be a people that embody the Sermon on the Mount, not in a corner, but publicly, visibly, demonstratively, so that the world would see and taste God's kingdom in this present age and thereby find what their souls are actually longing for, namely the kingdom of God. Local churches are to be like embassies for the kingdom of God in a foreign land, were to be like outposts for the kingdom of heaven, heralding the message of heaven, embodying the beauty of heaven, displaying the goodness of heaven so that more citizens might be recruited for the kingdom of, of God to the glory of the Father. That's what he's saying here. That's what's happening here. That's what we're called to here. That's what Jesus tells us we are here. And he does that by using a couple of metaphors. The first metaphor he uses is that of salt. Salt. Jesus says in verse 13, he says, you are the salt of the earth. Now, you may or may not know this, but there has been no shortage of ink spilled on what Jesus means by these very words right here. In fact, uh, one commentator points out that there are actually 11 different views on what Jesus means here. I think amongst the 11, there are three that are most common that you probably might have heard before. One is that since salt is a preservative, The church is supposed to act like a preservative in society, keeping it from rotting into absolute moral corruption. Salt is a preservative, right? You you buy butter at the store. If you make the mistake of buying unsalted butter, then you have to put it in your refrigerator, and it makes it really hard to spread it on toast. And so you have to buy the salted butter so that you can leave it out and spread it on toast more easily. Because the salt preserves the butter. It keeps it from decaying. Right? So in the same way, they reason that because salt is a preservative, uh, the church is supposed to be like a preservative in society to keep it from complete moral corruption, to keep society from going bad. And still others along the same lines believe that, that Jesus is saying that the church is supposed to act as a, as a purifier, in society. Salt in the ancient world was sometimes used as a purifier. Maybe you've heard of the practice of pouring salt into an open wound to keep it from uh, rotting or uh, getting infected. So some reason that perhaps Jesus is saying that the church is supposed to act kind of like a purifier in the world. She's supposed to purify the society she finds herself in. You know, our, our, our presence in the United States and in Dayton, Ohio, uh, in, in this analogy, would, would be uh, giving our city and our nation somewhat of a moral facelift because of our presence here. And still others reason that what Jesus is talking about here is, is how salt is, you know, it's a spice. It makes things taste better. You put it on eggs and, and in soups and whatnot, and, and it improves the taste of food. In the same way, then, they say the church is supposed to make this world more savory and tolerable because of our presence here. We're to make the, the earth a more tolerable place to live and exist. And while perhaps some of these views say some, some things that are true about Christians— I think they're all kind of missing the point. We need to remember that Jesus' arrival and works and teachings didn't come in a historical vacuum, but within the larger narrative of Scripture and within a certain cultural context. 
And we have to consider the context in which Jesus is saying this. You know, the, the phrase, my hams are burning, might mean something completely different depending on whether you're at the gym or in grandma's kitchen on Christmas Day. You have to consider the context of the words that are being spoken here. So context is important. And in Jesus' context, salt was used for a lot of reasons, but probably most significantly in light of what Jesus is talking about here is the fact that salt was used to signify covenant relationships. Salt was used to signify covenant relationships. There are a few passages of of Scripture that speak about this. So you can look these up. So look at Leviticus 2.13. And here the Lord is giving instruction to the nation of Israel for how they're to offer their sacrifices in the temple. And God says to them, he says, You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings you shall offer salt. And likewise, you could look at Numbers 18, 19. Numbers 18, 19, giving instructions about offerings. The Lord says, all the holy contributions that the people of Israel present to the Lord, I give to you and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual due. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord for you and for your offspring with you. Likewise, again, speaking about the Davidic covenant in 2 Chronicles 13, 5. Ought you not to know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingship over Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt? You get the point. Salt signified a covenantal agreement. Why? Probably because salt, as we already talked about, it's it's stable. And as such, in, in the ancient world, it often represented the idea of permanence. These covenants were binding relational agreements in which people were swearing allegiance to one another. So so an appropriate setting in which to use salt would be maybe that of a a marriage ceremony. You know, people like to do all sorts of things to signify their covenant commitment to one another. Lighting unity candles. Pouring some sand from two different containers into one single container something people do to to represent the idea of their covenant commitment to one another. And one couple I did a wedding for, they wrote their names in a slab of wood with like a soldering pen. Here's another idea. Take it from the ancient Near Eastern peoples and the biblical practice of God's people throughout the Old Testament. Eat some salt together. Maybe slap it on some bread or eat it by itself too. That's what I found. It signifies the permanence of covenantal commitment. Well, in the same way Jesus is saying about the church here, he's saying that the church is, as we live as holy, set apart, and distinctive people in the earth, we are signs of God's covenant to a watching world. We find an Old Testament picture of this very same thing in Exodus 19, 4-6. In Exodus, God rescues the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, and he rescues them so that they would be his covenant people in the world. Next to this 19, 4 through 6, the Lord says to Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself, how I rescued you and redeemed you from slavery. Now, therefore, he says, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He rescued them so that they would be his covenant people among all the peoples of the earth. And notice it's for this particular purpose, so that they would be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, 
Oh, we read it earlier, Psalm 67 too, so that he, he, puts it, he blessed Israel so that they would make his ways known in the earth and his saving power among all nations. So that they would be a sign to the world, a witness to the world of God's salvation and redemption. As we know, Israel failed, didn't they? They failed to be the salt of the earth. They, as, as Jesus says here, they lost their, their saltiness. You know, the ESV says uh, they, they, they lost its taste. That's the phrase that ESV uses. But that's not exactly what the text says. The phrase translated as lost its taste is actually the same word translated as foolish in Romans 1.22 and 2 Corinthians 1.20. The idea that it gives is actually not salt is losing its taste. Again, salt is stable. It can't actually lose its taste if it's pure salt. But in the ancient world, salt could be impure because it was mixed with other substances that diluted it. And so the, the idea being given here is that salt is it's this insipid thing. It's got no distinctiveness because it's impure. It's diluted. And so the charge that Jesus throughout Matthew, Mark, and Luke is giving to the nation of Israel, he's saying, you've lost your distinctiveness. You've become impure. Which isn't a new message. That's what the prophets have been telling Israel for hundreds of years. That's why they were, as Jesus says here, thrown out and trampled under people's feet. They were exiled from the land and trampled under the feet of the Babylonians and Syrians and Romans. They were living in exile because they didn't bear fruit as God's people. But notice what Jesus says to this this newly forming covenant community rising from the ashes of Israel. He says to this newly forming covenant community, he doesn't say, you know, if you guys can get and keep your act together, then you'll be the salt of the earth now. No, he says, you are the salt of the earth. There's no question. There's no ifs. There's no maybes. That's a statement, a fact. You are the salt of the earth. You are God's new covenant people rescued and redeemed by him to be a kingdom and priests, a holy nation. It's a sure thing. It's a done deal. The apostle Peter, he communicates this very idea in 1 Peter 2.9 when he says, about the local church to whom he is writing. He doesn't say, like in Exodus 19, that if they obey, you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. No, he says, 1 Peter 2, 9, we read it earlier, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. In other words, you are God's covenant People, you are the salt of the earth. You are a holy and set-apart people. You are a people different, set-apart, holy, sanctified from the rest of the world. Your character is different. Your lifestyle is different. Your speech is different. Your thought life and affections are different. You are different. You are sanctified and set-apart and holy because you are God's covenant people. But then Peter says something interesting He says that you are this chosen race and royal priesthood. You are this holy nation and a people for God's own possession. So that, purpose clause, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is your newly given identity so that you might be a community that proclaims and witnesses of the kingdom of Jesus Christ for the sake of the world. 
And that's actually what Jesus goes on to communicate in the next metaphor here. He says that not only is the church the salt of the earth, but the church is the light of the world. You are the light of the world, he says in verse 14. This is getting at the same, the, the different side of the same coin here, because if the church is God's distinctive, set-apart, and holy people living in covenant relationship with their Savior, then they will be a light for the nations. We are blessed by our Savior King not to keep the goodness and glory of God to ourselves, but Psalm 67, 2 again, so that God's ways and saving power may be known to all the nations of the earth. We are the people that God has always planned for himself to reveal his glory to and to reveal his glory through for the sake of the world. Now, the fact that Jesus calls the church the light of the world here is interesting, isn't it? Probably the majority of us are are comfortable with thinking and talking about Jesus as the light of the world. But the church, not so much. And Jesus, indeed, is the light of the world. You know, Matthew 4, it comes right before Matthew 5. I know, it's a big uh, surprise in Revelation. In Matthew 4, Matthew speaks of Jesus in the beginning of his ministry by quoting Isaiah 9. This is what he says. He says, The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. He's talking about Jesus in the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. For those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. That's actually not the only place where Isaiah speaks of Jesus as this great light. Isaiah 42, 6 speaks of Jesus God the Father in the first person says to Jesus, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. And again, in Isaiah 49, 6, God the Father says of Jesus through the prophet Isaiah, he says, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. And then Jesus comes along in John 8, 12, and he says, I am the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world, yes, but that's not what he says here. Indeed, Jesus would soon be leaving. He would soon be giving his life as a sacrifice for our sins and rising on the third day and then ascending to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father as our great high priest and king until his return. But he did not intend to leave the earth without a community that would witness to his gospel and glory. And so by extension, as we live in union and communion with the risen and ascended Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, the church, we, the local churches all over the world, all of us, we are the light of the world. Okay, then how do we live as such? How do we live as the light of the world? It's a good question. Let me say three things. First, we live as the light of the world by being a visible community. By being a visible community. The church is, by nature, what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called a visible community. Jesus says, A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. We are visibly disciples of Jesus together. I mean, it's no coincidence that the first thing you do in obedience as a new Christian is you go public with your faith through means of baptism. It's a very public act. 
And it's a way, it's part of what that's saying is anonymous Christianity, hidden Christianity is an oxymoron. It doesn't make any sense. The church is a visible community. And there are actually two ways that we can compromise on this front. That we can be an invisible community instead of a visible community. The first is to retreat from engaging the world as a community. To treat the church, to treat this place and people as a hideout from the world. A place and people in which we privately practice some version of Christian spirituality. Failing to engage the world and and good works and with the truth of the gospel. It's kind of like the magic community in Harry Potter. Okay, I love Harry Potter. And so it was only a matter of time until these illustrations, Harry Potter illustrations came. But you know, the, the magic community in Harry Potter, they live entirely hidden lives from the rest of the world. In the books, uh, you know, England even has a ministry of magic, but no one knows about it. And part of the Ministry of Magic's job is to keep the magic community completely hidden from the rest of the world, from the muggles. That's, the, that's us non-magic folks. And, and, and so the magic community, they have their own hidden ministry, their own hidden villages, hidden schools, their hidden sports. They're completely and entirely undetected from the rest of the world. And I imagine that, that some of us in this room might be completely content with that being true of our participation in the kingdom of God. Live as anonymous Christians in our neighborhoods and at work. Tomorrow at work, when someone asks you, what did you do this weekend? You won't say, I gathered with my church family and we worshiped the risen Christ and celebrated the gospel. No, you'll say what you watched on Netflix over the weekend. You've had friends and coworkers for for years who would be shocked to find out that you're a Christian and a member of a local church. You never shared the gospel with them and invited them to church. You never invited them to hang out with your city group. You've lived as an anonymous disciple. That's one way we can compromise, to live as a visible community. The second way we can fail to live as a visible community is to live like the rest of the world so that we're not even distinguishable from the world in any way. We speak in the same way that the world speaks. We watch the same thing that the world watches. We spend our money and time in the same way the world spends their money and time. Our devotion to participating in the life and gatherings of our church is so weak and timid, no one would be able to guess that it was of any value to us, probably because it's not. We actually will date and become romantically involved with people who are unbelieving, not Christians. In fact, that's probably one of the fastest and most effective ways for us to start to blend in and become invisible to the world. And indeed, when when Bonhoeffer spoke of the church as being a visible community, this kind of invisibility is actually what he had in mind. As you probably know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he lived in Germany during the, the Nazi regime when Hitler was kidnapping and enslaving and murdering hundreds of thousands of Jews and physically and mentally disabled people. And in that time, Bonhoeffer Bonhoeffer watched the vast majority of churches in Germany lose their distinctiveness and begin to endorse Hitler and his ideals and his regime. They either had to do that or be persecuted. 
as Jesus told his disciples they would be. There wasn't really any other choice. It was either endorse Hitler or be persecuted. And they just decided that the cost was too high and they endorsed Hitler instead. Bonhoeffer, on the other hand, he stood for the church and for the gospel and for the Jews and for the disabled. He stood up and he spoke out against Nazi ideals and preached the gospel with boldness and clarity, which led to his arrest, his imprisonment, and eventually his being hung by a piano wire in a concentration camp. And listen to what he said about this very passage. He said, the followers are a visible community. Their discipleship is visible in action and lifts them out of the world. Otherwise, it would not be discipleship. Flight into the invisible, into secret discipleship is a denial of the call. A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. See, the church is a visible community. We are a visible community. Otherwise, we are not disciples at all. The second, we live as the light of the world by doing good works. It says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. As God's covenant community, we're a visible community. We devote ourselves to good works. What kind of good works does Jesus have in mind here? And we just read the Sermon on the Mount, really. We want to find out. Remember the, the Beatitudes that we looked over the last eight Sundays. Being a people marked by meekness and mercy. Being a people who are gentle towards the broken and lowly. By being a people who do acts of mercy to relieve those who are suffering under the weight and difficulty of life. By being a people who make peace with others, forgiving others as God in Christ has forgiven us. By being a people who rejoice and are glad when we are slandered and insulted and unjustly accused. And later in the sermon, by our generosity to the poor and those in need, by our devotedness to worship and prayer and fasting, by devotion not to live lives of material extravagance, but simplicity and humility, and more, by our, by our hospitality to our neighbors. You know, we have been so extravagantly and sacrificially welcomed by God in Christ, and so in turn, We welcome others into our homes and into our lives with such warmth and generosity. The Bronze are actually hosting an information meeting about Safe Families Dayton coming up here tomorrow, the 15th at 6 p.m. I'd encourage you, go find out more about this, this ministry, how you can join with other members of our church to serve in Safe Families and what they're doing in efforts to be devoted to biblical hospitality for those in need in our city. It's just God's covenant people We're called to give extravagantly of our time, our talent, our money, our homes, our lives. Because in so doing, we're simply being what we are, the light of the world. And then third, we live as the light of the world by heralding the good news of the gospel. Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
We do all of this with an aim toward those who don't know God, who haven't trusted in Christ, who haven't become kingdom citizens. We do so with an aim that they might become such for the glory of God. And so notice what's implied here. Implied is heralding the gospel. Because listen, if all we do is good works with our hands but never open our mouths to evangelize, then people won't know who to give glory to for our good works. They'll think that we're the ones doing it for our glory. That we are the good ones. They'll think that we're the ones deserving of praise. And so as a visible community devoted to good works, we say with the psalmist over and over in Psalm 115.1, not to us but to your name be the glory of God. And so we preach the good news of the gospel of a father who's loved us so much that he gave his only begotten son to come and live the life that we should have lived and who died the death that we deserve to die. And he died in our place so that we would be freely and fully and finally forgiven forever and that we might become and live as sons and daughters of the one true God. And we preach the good news that on the, on the third day, he rose from the dead, defeating sin, defeating Satan, defeating death, so that we would be set free from that tyranny of that unholy trinity, and so that we might be saved into the joy and love of the holy trinity forever. And we live as the light of the world, being a visible community, doing good works, heralding that gospel for the glory of God. And there will be persecution, Jesus says. That's a guarantee. There will be times where we're insulted and slandered, but we'll also be an attractive community and a means through which some will come and join in giving glory to our Father who is in heaven. That's the call here. The call is to be God's covenant people in Christ, representing him for all the world to see. That's the call here. Before we close, though, let me say a few things about what we need in order to live as such a community faithfully. First, guys, we, we need the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit. The Lord has been impressing this so much on my heart lately. We need the Spirit. I want you to realize that this community that Jesus is preaching to here, the original audience, his disciples, they didn't actually start living as this community, the light of the world, until Pentecost. Hear me, Matthew 5 is impossible without Acts 2. Where do we find them prior to Acts 2? Find them hiding, quietly hiding away. Actually, prior to the resurrection, they're hiding locked doors behind locked doors because they're afraid. Then Acts 2, Pentecost comes, whoosh! And on the spot, transformed, boldly preaching the gospel, boldly witnessing to their city about the glory and grace of Jesus Christ, thousands saved. In Acts 2, 42-47, we see this community, this visible community in the city of Jerusalem where they're unceasingly devoted to worship together. 
and devoted to the preaching and teaching of the Bible, devoted to baptism and the Lord's Supper, devoted to living life together in such a way that are sacrificial and generous. They are devoted to giving their possessions and money away to the poor so that there's no needy in their midst. And they were such a compelling and attractive community to that city that in Acts 2.47, it says that day by day, they were adding to their numbers those who were being saved. You're living as the salt of the earth, as God's covenant people, and as the light of the world, a visible community, so because the presence and power of the Holy Spirit had invaded their hearts and lives. Guys, we need the Holy Spirit. And you might say, well, well I already have the Holy Spirit. Yes, I, I, absolutely. If you trust in Jesus, you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. You wouldn't be able to trust in Jesus without the Holy Spirit. Absolutely, but, but I want you to realize that walking in the Spirit, being guided by the Spirit, being filled with the Holy Spirit is not a static thing. It's a dynamic thing in the Christian life. You can be more or less guided and filled by the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul gives the admonishment to the Ephesian church, those who are already born again, already Filled with the Spirit, he says to them in Ephesians 5.19, to be filled with the Spirit. Actually, literally, be continually, he says, be continually filled with the Spirit, he says to them. Because we can live our lives in such a way that we are either grieving the Spirit as he indwells us, or in such a way that we're seeking to be filled with him more and more. In such a way that we're, we're pursuing his will and guidance for our lives. In such a way that we're walking in step with what he wants for us as followers of Jesus. And so let me ask you, could we describe your life as someone who's in constant pursuit of being filled by the Holy Spirit? If we look at your schedule, would we conclude that Netflix or God's Word is more important to you? If we look at the little screen time tracker on your iPhone, we see... The Bible taking up more time or social media. If we took an inventory of the kind of things you pray for, would we conclude that you're more concerned with God making your life easier or that you desired more of the Holy Spirit in your life? And listen, this is important. Jesus told us to pray for the Holy Spirit. In Luke 11 9 through 13, he tells us to pray for more of the Holy Spirit, and he says that God will give the Holy Spirit. He says, I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of him? Guys, if we are going to faithfully live as salt and light, we need the Holy Spirit. There's good news because the Father loves to pour out the Holy Spirit on those who ask Him. Ask Him. Pursue being filled with the Holy Spirit. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. We need the Holy Spirit. And second, we need one another. We need one another. There's no way we're living as salt and light without one another. Most assuredly, because realize this teaching from Jesus is teaching to a community, not to an individual. 
You know, one of my problems with much of the material about out there in this particular part of the Sermon on the Mount is how individualistic it is. It's seen as a call and exhortation for individual Christians to live individually as Christians in the world. That's not what this is. A Christian is not a city by themselves. A grain of salt out there by itself is actually worthless. No, get the the shape of the passage. It pertains to our corporate witness together as local churches. How we live together as salt and light. How we collectively witness together with our good works and heralding the gospel to a watching world. So please don't use this in passages like this as a call to withdraw from the community to be in the world more, but as a call for our community to, together, be more visible within our city and neighborhoods together. The third, we need to continually repent. We need to continually repent. Repentance is not just something that happens at the beginning of the Christian life. It's something that happens every day in the Christian life. The church is a continually repenting community. And now this is important because, because some might be tempted to read a passage such as this. This has happened before. And conclude that since the church is supposed to be salt and light in the world, we must protect the reputation of the church by covering up heinous sins in the church when they come up. Maybe there's a scandal in a church. Sexual abuse, immorality, mishandling of finances whatever, something along those lines. And too often, in an effort to protect the reputation of the church, there's a cover-up by its members. People try to hide what's happened, reasoning that, well, this thing that happened may be bad, but we don't want to make a bad thing worse by hurting our witness to our neighbors with this going public. That's not what this passage is calling churches to. In fact, it's the exact opposite Notice that one of the functions of light is exposing that which is hidden. Light publicly exposes and acknowledges and confesses evil and wrongdoing and sin. It doesn't cover it up. And part of how we live as the light of the world is by owning our sin and being truthful about our sin and confessing our sins and repenting of our sin, both individually and as a community when the need arises. It's also why, as a church, we're devoted to the biblical practice of church discipline. Those instructions in Matthew 18, 15 through 20, they're not instructions for personal conflict resolution in in an individual Christian's life. They're instructions for how a local church, as a visible community, is to deal with unrepentant members in their midst in order to maintain the holiness and witness of the church as the salt of the earth and light of the world. If we see fellow church members living unrepentant lifestyles, failing to maintain the church's distinctiveness from the world, we're to go to them and confront them one-on-one. And if it continues, we're to take two or three along with us and do the same. And if it continues, we're to take it to the entirety of of our congregation at a members' meeting. And if that person fails to listen to the entirety of the congregation, they are to be redemptively removed as a member of the church. That's Jesus' plan and instruction for how we're to continue to live as salt and light in the world today and to ensure that the church is a community that continually repents. We need to continually repent. And then lastly, we need to abide in Christ. And really, this sums up 
are saying that we need the Holy Spirit and we need one another and we need to continually repent. All of that could be summed up by just simply saying we need to abide in Christ. Listen, the fact that Jesus uses the same metaphor in John 8, 12 in the church, and for the church here in Matthew 5, 14, it's no coincidence. We are only the light of the world as we live in union and communion with Jesus, the source of light in this world. He is our source of light. And Charles Spurgeon once illustrated this, like, like the moon, the church is a borrower of light. The, the moon only shines down on the earth as it reflects the light of the sun. And likewise, we only shine in the world as we reflect the light of Christ in the world, and we only reflect the light of Christ in the world as we abide in him. He is the sun, we are the moon, he is the vine, we are the branches, and we only bear fruit if we abide in him. So the call here in Matthew 13, 5, 13 through 16 is ultimately a call to come to Jesus, to look to Jesus, to trust in Jesus, to seek Jesus, to savor Jesus, to sit at the feet of Jesus, to commune with Jesus. And that's what we're about to be invited to do here in a moment when we come to the table where we remember what it costed Christ to purchase and form and establish such a community. What it costed Christ to make us his covenant people in the light of the world. It cost him his body being broken and his blood being shed. He came as the light of the world so that God's salvation would reach the ends of the earth, Isaiah 49, 6. So that his salvation would reach us. But not just so that we would enjoy his salvation and keep it to ourselves, but so that through us it would continue to reach the ends of the earth. We are the light of the world, and we are the light of the world in Christ. Let's pray. Father, seal this word upon our hearts. We pray that this meal that we're about to receive would be to us a communion with the Lord Jesus Christ, with his body and blood, so that we might be strengthened and nourished to be a visible community, devoted to good, to good works and devoted to heralding your good news to our city and to all the nations of the world for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.